This is Janelle Wood, and you are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. Welcome, friend. The Finding Something Real podcast is designed especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. As someone who's been through my own ups and downs with faith, I desire to create an invitational place for people to process and address questions about God and Christianity. Finding Something Real is about finding restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Those are things I believe we all desire that Jesus Christ has the ultimate answers for. And I tell people I don't just believe in Jesus because he's changed my life, although he has. I trust in him because he's radically real and there's no one better. So if you find that all hard to believe, I get that. And if you're skeptical, hey, you've come to the right place. But I invite people to go on a journey with me. And today we're diving deeper into season six with our final episode this month curated by my co-host, Luca from Switzerland. The way this podcast works is a little different than other podcasts. Here every month we try to invite a different young woman to share her story, to talk about her faith questions, and then we invite on Christian guests who can address her honest questions or topics. So this month you've been listening to episodes curated by my friend Luca. In her first episode this month, Luca shared about her experience as an exchange student. She talked about her background and faith questions that she has. Several weeks of conversations have gone by, and last week I spoke with Stand to Reason speaker and apologist Tim Barnett about the miracles in the Bible and whether we can even believe all of that actually occurred. It was a wonderful conversation. I invite you to go and listen if you haven't already checked that out. Um, And also, if you missed the episodes this month with Jay Warner Wallace or with Keith Oglesby, I invite you to listen to those rich conversations as well. I just really appreciate the guests and the questions that have been addressed here on the podcast. Even though Luca didn't join for today's final conversation, I'm very grateful for her sharing about her real concerns. I just actually spoke with her recently, and she told me that eventually she was going to get around to listening to these. So Luca, if you're listening, like I just talked with you the other day, I I hope that um, I do your questions justice in conversing with these guests. But today's guest, I'm very excited to talk with him about his ministry with young people and their faith questions, and also the question of how do you respond to young people who have a hard time reconciling belief in God with the evil that they see in the world. Today's guest brings a great perspective to that conversation. He has a lot of experience, and I think you're going to love him and the things that he's doing. So I invite you to listen, and I'm excited um, as you do. So we'll go ahead and dive into today's conversation in just a moment. But first, a few words regarding stuff that helps keep us on the air. Hi friend, this podcast is sponsored in part by Faithful Counseling. Life is full of ups and downs, unexpected twists and turns, and sometimes we struggle with all that can come our way. Faithful Counseling will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist who is also a practicing Christian. It's not a crisis line, it's not self-help, it's professional counseling done securely online. And as someone with a master's degree in counseling psychology and whom at various times in the past 20 or so years 
have benefited from seeing a professional therapist, I know the value that professional counseling can bring because we all need someone to talk with and faithful counseling can help. Please visit faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real to sign up for professional faith-based counseling. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. There's also a special offer for Finding Something Real listeners to get 10% off your first month at faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real. Thanks again to Faithful Counseling for being a sponsor of this episode. Well, friend, how do you respond to someone who is questioning God's existence because they can't reconcile a good God with the evil they see in the world? Or how do you respond in general to young people with questions? We're going to dive into that discussion a little bit today. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And friend, I am so excited about today's episode. You are listening in for season six, where we are starting off each month with a different young woman sharing her faith story and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and Christianity. This month, we are featuring conversations with or for a young woman named Luca from Switzerland. I invited Luca to be here today, and she couldn't make it. But when her and I first talked, she shared about having been through a period in her life where she questioned whether God might actually exist. But she came to the conclusion that, well, how could he? She said um, in that initial conversation, why would someone that would be able to make everything good just not do it? As she said, especially since in the Bible, he's so great and nice and can help everyone. Um, she said, there's actually people needing help. He's just watching and not intervening. That was Luca's perspective. And here to talk about that today, as well as questions that uh, this person feels in his day-to-day work, is a special guest specializing in answering young people's hard faith questions. He has more than a decade experience in teaching and 20 plus years of pastoral ministry, supported by a diverse educational background spanning six academic degrees in science, theology, philosophy, and ethics. He is currently assistant professor of Christian worldview at Grand Canyon University, one of, if not the largest Christian universities in the world. I will say that I just had another podcast guest on here from Liberty University who would beg to differ, but we're not going to get into that discussion. Uh, In addition to his (laughs) academic work, he is the co-founder of the Center for Cultural Apologetics involved with the Ratio Christi Ministry a fellow with Reasons to Believe, and sits on the Academic Advisory Board for the Center for Biblical Unity. Dr. Joe Miller, welcome to the Finding Something Real podcast. Hi, Janelle. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for that wonderful intro. And uh, it's a great, I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's gonna be fun. Oh, well, I'm excited. And I mean, all of that stuff, I'm like, whoa, so much that I'd love to unpack there. Um, But before we dive into this conversation, I'd love to hear more about you and your faith journey and yeah, whatever you want to share about that. Yeah. So I grew up uh, in, I was born and raised in Pennsylvania. So uh, I was born into a family, a Christian family, raised, you know, I Methodist tradition. I accepted the Lord when I was 13 at a Christian camp. Mm-hmm. And it's just the first time I really recognized that um, God really loved me and on a personal level, I was a kid. I was not, uh, I never felt like I fit in. I was sort of this little pudgy kid and I had glasses and, you know, was always made fun of for a lot of things. Today they call it bullying. 
when I was a kid, they just called it growing up. And, <laughs> uh, but it was really, I struggled with a lot of being, am I lovable? Could anyone really truly love me? And uh, when I realized for the first time that Jesus died on the cross because he loved me, uh, is really when I came to know the Lord and accept him as my savior in my life. Cause I just wanted to be in that kind of relationship with a God who cared for me and saw value in me where others didn't see value. And so that's when I came to the Lord. I went to college. Um, uh, I always say that, uh, naivete is the handmaid of maturity. So I was not necessarily a great person because, uh, you know, I made good decisions. I was just a good person because I was too naive to make dumb decisions uh, a lot of times. <laughs> and I had roommates that would get drunk all the time and do all kinds of crazy stuff that I won't really get into details here, mm. but, uh, you know, would ask me, Hey, why don't you come drinking with us? And they'd come back on, you know, four or five nights, they'd be drinking and they come back and throwing up in the toilets. And I'm like, well, Oh yeah, you make it look so fun, you know. <laughs> uh, and I would say to him, "Well, because I don't do that because God says I shouldn't." And I really was genuinely surprised that that wasn't a persuasive thing. Like, mm -hmm. wait, so you don't care what God says? You don't care about the Bible? I didn't understand that response, mm -hmm. uh, and so I really started on that journey exploring the 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 fundamentals of my faith. Why do I believe what I believe? Why is it that God says the things he says? There's got to be a reason for it. And so I spent a lot of years involved in campus ministry through my college years as an engineering student at Penn State, very secular uh, environment. And so that really shaped my faith, felt called into ministry in the midst of my engineering program. Uh, a lot of a lot of emotional drama later, I ended up going to seminary. I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I uh, couldn't have told you the difference between a Pentecostal and a Baptist or a Presbyterian. I just picked that school because it was a three-year instead of a four-year MDiv. And my mm. sister lived in town. I could sleep on her couch till I got a job but discovered all kinds of uh, intrigue between different denominational views, uh, you know, charismatic, Pentecostal, prosperity gospel stuff. You know, I discovered so many things for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's where I really started to mature in terms of not just my uh, apologetic sense of my faith, like how could I defend it against a world that hates Christians, so to speak, where's my undergrad, but my grad side was really like, okay, what is the, what is the the substance of my faith in terms of these different faith traditions and where do I fall on these different issues? And I started to explore that a lot in seminary. And then I ended up uh, getting a job uh, at a church in Washington state, south of Seattle, near Tacoma, a city called Puyallup. Ended up being there on staff at a church. Yeah, I was just all <laughs> over the map, which is an irony for me because I'm a very much a homebody. Like my wife will tell you, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I'd rather, let's go out. I'd just rather be home. You know, I just like to be home and I like roots and family. My mom was like one of 11s, a big family growing up. And so God moving me all over the country was just a really, uh, one of the ironies of life. You know, God moves us into our zones where we're not comfortable. And so it was there for years, planted a church, ended up moving to San Diego, uh, got involved in the teaching side of things, also planted a church there. I uh, was there for about 10 years. And then we just moved last year to Phoenix, Arizona, where I'm at Grand Canyon University, full-time, as you mentioned, you know, full-time faculty teaching Christian worldview. So that's sort of the real skinny, quick and dirty on my background where I'm from. Wow. Um, <laughs> there's so many like <laughs> interesting threads there that I feel like are so similar to my story. Uh, mm. 
Number one, uh, having like a real encounter with the Lord, growing up in a Christian home, loving Jesus. But when I was 13, uh, really, like, I don't know, having this thing where I was like, wow, so drawn in. Um, when I was in college, had uh, I, I was probably more like your friends, you know, like doing stuff I shouldn't be doing um, and kind of wondering why. But it's interesting. I went to Pennsylvania um, after college, Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Oh, uh, yeah. Out in the middle of nowhere, yeah. Um, Yeah. Didn't stay very long. Um, But then uh, we, my husband and I, married a man from North Dakota. We ended up, uh, he taught at Bonnie Lake High School, which isn't very far from Puyallup. Oh, yeah. And we went to church at the Lighthouse uh, Christian Center in Puyallup, Washington. Oh, you did? That's where I was on staff. No way. Yeah, that's where I was on staff. What (laughs) years were you there? (laughs) Uh, Did you know Jonathan Schmidt? Uh. Jonathan Schmidt. His oh uh, his brother was on staff there, I believe. Okay. And, oh, Connie and yeah, and Roger Schmidt. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we were there when him and Janice came, and that was in 2010, 2011. Okay, I left. <laughs> I was off staff there just a few years prior to that. We moved to San Diego in 2010. So you came after I was off staff, but I was I was left there in 2000 um like four or five something like that maybe six maybe 2006 i'm drawing a blank on the years but yeah so just a few years before you got there that's, that's so funny weird yeah it's <laughs> a small crazy. world small world um yeah, i'm sure yeah. you know who ryan dowdy was on staff there at the time i don't remember he but... was the like he did a lot of adult ed stuff he was on my youth staff when i was there and then he got hired on into full-time staff so there's a lot of people there i just knew you know what was interesting in that period of our life my husband and i we were kind of on the outside looking in, it kind of felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dr. Art Hunt, the pastor there, whatever, yeah. you know, uh, very kind. He had great sermons. Um, but we would go in, we'd sneak in, and we'd kind of leave. And um, we got involved in a, a small group there. But it was really cool because my youth pastor, who had had such a huge impact on my life, um, of all, <laughs> I, I always use that line from Casablanca, of all the places in all the world, you came back to mind. Uh, he shows up in Puyallup, Washington, at the church oh, we were wow. going to at the time, and that was Jonathan Schmidt, and he actually passed away in a tragic car accident a few years ago. Mm. But um, anyway, long, st- wow, w- random and kind of crazy, uh, the yeah. connections there. But um, <laughs> Joe, how did you get involved in college ministry, specifically regarding apologetics, um, I know you were passionate about ministry. Obviously, you're a smart guy, engineering, you know, getting into reasons for your faith. What made you specifically want to hone in on working with college students? Yeah, you know, part of my thing, and, and this is not just because I'm an old guy, but I've always believed in the generational nature of our faith, you know, that we have what we have is always meant to be passed along, right? Um, I think that's one of the things as parents, when you have your children, it's like, how do I, I remember holding my youngest, my firstborn, uh, Zach in my arms when he was born and thinking, okay, God, the idea of being a parent isn't even what scares me most is like, how do I make him a disciple? That's the part that confused me. Like, what do I even do? I know how to, like, I've done small groups and studies and whatever my whole, you know, my whole adult life, but how do you make a baby into a disciple of Jesus. 
Um, and so that whole idea of generational faith is so critical to Christianity of who we are from the beginning in Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. It's, you know, we have babies and teach them to follow Yahweh and to love him and to honor him with their lives. I mean, that's our call. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's only natural though, as I did get older and then got, you know, through more education that I felt like the environment that got equipped me to reach that next generation was the college campus. Uh, because, you know, it's just a wonderful group of age group of people to work with. When I was a youth pastor, it was always so sad because, you know, you get through your, get a kid through middle school and they're squirrely and their boys are stinky. And then they get into <laughs> high school and they just start to get interesting human, become interesting human beings. And then they graduate and leave. And it's like, oh, you just got conversant in like language. You know, it's like, I could actually talk to you. Um, so college is a great fit. Uh, you know, academically, I think I felt like, oh, I can have uh, at least some, uh, I haven't earned their respect yet, but maybe positionally with my, all the academic stuff, there's a sort of like, okay, we'll listen to this guy talk, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to answers. So I felt like that was a natural fit for that passion for the generational and then what God equipped me to do. And so I was teaching at a seminary, uh, when I was in San Diego got laid off from that job because of financial issues with this with the school and so I said well maybe now's the time to transition into more of a college focused apologetics ministry and that's where I got involved with Ratio Christi which is the reason of Christ which is a national organization that just tries to build college uh apologists uh you know apologists who work on the college campus so that's when I got involved there uh and so that's where I started to live that out hmm. Love that. Do you know if Ratio Christi is on Western uh, Western Washington University? Is there a? I don't. I know we have. I know Ratio Christi has about a hundred and I think now twenty maybe campuses that they are on, uh, but I'm not sure. Well, I couldn't even begin to name all. There's so many. Yeah. It's, it's growing crazy, and I can't even keep track of it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think it's awesome. Um, tell me about Grand Canyon University because it's a Christian university, correct? Yeah. So tell me about that. So, yeah, so I had the chance then uh, last year, I got hired on actually May 5th of last year is when I was offered uh, the gig. And so we moved here July of of 2022. So we're just shy of a year living here in, in Arizona. But for me, it was a dream job in academics. I love to teach. I love that whole environment. But um, I teach a course called Christian Worldview. And this course is basically I spend 15 weeks sharing with students what is, you know, basic concepts, what is a worldview? We all have one, but then I get to share, hey, this is what the Christian worldview about in terms of origin, meaning, morality, destiny, who we are, what we believe as Christians. And most will never get a chance to hear that except on internet memes or TikTok videos or caricatures of Christian faith. And what was so compelling about that is being on this campus. So the uh, GCU is a missional university led by a more covenantal community. And I like the way that, that we've uh, built it there. So I sign a statement of faith in my college of theology as faculty. I have a commitment to the Christian faith and to moral standards and ethics, but our students don't have to sign any of that. We have mm -hmm. chapel, but it's not required. So the students in my classes, so I teach about 300 students each semester in four different classes, uh, but almost all Christian Worldview 101. But I've got students who are atheists, agnostics, pantheists, 
Christians, nominal Christians, but from all kinds of traditions, from different countries, nations, all over the United States. I've got students who identify with every kind of gender you could possibly imagine, but then there's also Christians who identify, you know, the traditional male-female kind of way. I mean, so it's a very broad spectrum of society in large, because the students aren't coming there necessarily because of the Christian, you know, foundations of the university. They're coming because they want to be teachers or business leaders or you know, do or doctors or engineers, whatever. And so it's really, I feel like they're coming and I get an entire uh, captive audience for 15 weeks to share the hope of Jesus Christ with students that may, this may be the only opportunity to hear who Jesus is from a genuine believer in their life. So that's the kind of nature of the university. There's about 25,000 students on campus, much bigger than Liberty. Uh, and <laughs> we have 90,000 online, also much bigger than Liberty. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm throwing down. I'm throwing down the gun uh, and I will, uh, you know, we'll fight. Sorry, uh, Dr. Keith Oglesby. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, oh my goodness. yeah. So that's the nature of the campus, and I'm excited to be a part of that kind of missional and uh, adventure. I love that, and I did not realize that that was something unique about Grand Canyon University. Um, in fact, it makes sense. I was wondering, well, they don't have Christian in their name. Uh, you know, you have to kind of Google and kind of check it out. It's a Christian university. I didn't know that, and um, so. I guess my question is, when students come there, are they surprised? Because they're en enrolling, they know, hey, we're going to be taught by Christian yeah. faculty and staff, but they come, I'm guessing, because of the academics, the reputation, the proximity, this yeah. is, right? Is that why they yeah, come All anyway? those things. There, I think there are some who are coming because it's a Christian university, they've done enough stuff that they realize, oh, okay, this is what it is. Uh, my class is required. So I have lots of students who are like, I have no desire to be here. I'm forced to take this class. Uh, and there's <laughs> not chapel, that, like, but the <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I love there's it. students that are there that grew up and, you know, they went to Christian high schools and they thought, well, I'm never going to learn anything. I took you know, philosophy. I took Christian worldview in high school and we get a lot of students who are really well established. Uh, so we get a Anywhere between those things from antagonistic to, you know, uh, very well versed and it's everything in between. Uh, but I think, by the, I hope by the time most of them are in that class, they realize, okay, this was what I signed up for. So I try to preface that at the beginning, like, okay, you did sign up for this. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see that take. But, yeah, they're mostly there because of the academic goals that they have and they have the degrees that, GC has nine colleges, so across a variety of spectrums. So there's a lot of nursing and a lot of business and a lot of engineering, those kinds of students. Mm. Yeah, I love that. So what what's the best part about working in a school like that? And, and by the way, is there any other school that's doing that kind of model, the missional model of we're, we're a Christian university? We Because I went to SPU. Yeah. You had to go to chapel or you lied about it. You lied about going to chapel because, you know, there were ways to get around it. It was on the honor code. So yeah. all of us, quote unquote, Christian students were just, you know, saying we went. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe not everyone. I did. Um, and all my friends. But uh, are there other universities that are doing it that way? Do you know? Yeah. You know, this is one of the things that I, I've talked to some folks about. And I discovered when I really got there and got involved, I didn't know fully even what I was stepping into. 
uh, comparative. But if you look at most other Christian universities that I've really that I'm aware of, at least the ones that I've really looked into, a lot of them will be you know front and center. This is our faith. We're we're attracting you know Christians who want to be here for Christian stuff specifically, uh, and not that students necessarily in all those sign a statement of faith, but there is a stronger uh, connection there. But what I've found is that there's a lot more mission drift in those places. What's fascinating to me about uh, GCU is I think they found a way to navigate the secularization of culture. Mm. So because they don't require students to sign a statement of faith or commit to those sort of things, you don't get a lot of people coming and then lying about their position of where they're at. Mm-hmm. You don't get faculty generally coming and lying about who they are. Not that it, I'm sure it doesn't happen, but, you know, just to get the job, which is true in any any university. There are people who will tell you whatever it takes to get the job. And mm-hmm. so that's always the case. But uh, there's no pressure to do that necessarily to GCU because of the missional nature of the university and only the covenantal nature. And really that covenantal side is only in our College of Theology. Our other faculty in the other colleges aren't required to sign those things either. Now they know oh, they're wow. going to teach at a Christian place and they actually have to integrate Christian worldview concepts into their curriculum. But some of them do a better job than others based on their background. Mm-hmm. So um I think what it frees GCU up to do, though, is to be very bold. Like, I'm very bold in my classes. I'm unapologetic about what it means to be a Christian. This is our view. When we talk about origins, we'll talk about male or female. When we talk about uh, truth and morality and and we talk about the who Jesus is, I'm presenting a robust Christian biblical account of all of those things. But I don't have to be... Uh, Uh, I don't have to sidestep those issues, Mm -hmm. even though I know I'm dealing with students who are there who don't agree. And that's actually the strength because because we know we're in this together, we're saying, hey, look, let's learn how to have a a dialogue where we can disagree. Unlike the world, when you disagree, we know we're all going to disagree starting off in this class. Mm -hmm. But my goal here is to present to you a, a fair view of what I believe. And then you can compare the same uh, critiques of how do you test a worldview to your worldview, you know, and I can't present every worldview, but you can have learned to evaluate your worldview and then compare and contrast, which really is the worldview that I want to represent my life. Mm-hmm. And so I think it creates an environment where there's an openness and an honesty that I don't see in other places that I'm familiar with that have had a significant mission drift away from their Christian uh, foundation. Wow. What's the best and the hardest parts about that? Because I feel like there, there's there got to be some great things about, but also some downsides to yeah. working in that environment. I think the downside uh, outside the College of Theology, students will, they'll get this sort of robust from our, so all of our College of Theology faculty teach essentially philosophy and theology, any of the Bible related stuff is purely out of College of Theology faculty. So all of our philosophers are very solid in their faith. They'll sign our statement of faith. They'll sign our ethical standards. So all of those courses that are dealing with that uh, are very robust and grounded in a biblical Christian traditional orthodox framework. Uh, And and that gives us some variety too, because we will have people from different Presbyterians or Lutherans or Baptists. So we don't have a particularly denominational approach, but we do have a biblical approach. The frustration side out of that, I think, is in my time dealing with students, uh, is that 
I think outside of that, they can deal with other faculty who are teaching, say, in a nursing or engineering who don't necessarily have a solid theological understanding. And it can be difficult for the students to navigate. Well, wait, I thought they're all Christian and now I'm seeing different sides to that. But I'll tell you, uh, that's true everywhere, whether you pick a, any other large university. Uh, there are faculty, even though they're supposed to sign the statement of faith, that don't actually teach it in their classroom. So I think that's far more disruptive in those environments than ours, where the students know clearly we're not expecting all of those faculty to understand everything. If you want to understand Christian, come to Christian theology or philosophy, come to our cot faculty or College of Theology faculty. So it's trying to, it's, it's bad on one side, but the strength of it is there's clarity. And where there's clarity, at least there's hope that we can deal with potential confusions that come up in a, in a significant way. Mm. When I was at Seattle Pacific University as an undergrad, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> and I remember, mm -hmm. you know, after going through a crisis of faith, you know, where I had made some decisions, you know, towards, hey, I can be a Christian and, you know, live like the world and realizing mm -hmm. that ends up being kind of empty and miserable um coming back and repenting and writing this article and i think the editor she retitled it it was repudiation of hypocrisy needed which at the time i didn't even know what that word meant and uh you know it was all <laughs> about like hey w we say we love jesus and we're really doing all this other stuff mm -hmm. like um very few were really passionate about the lord and um, do you see that as being prevalent among the culture, even even where you're at? I, I know, you know, and as a good, as a quote unquote good Christian girl, you know, I wanted to go to a Christian university. I wanted the safety yeah. of that. My parents wanted the safety of that. I'm sure. But then you go, and it's like, well, there's a lot of other fun things to do here, and I'm on my own. Yeah. And all my friends are doing it. So, yeah. is that a common thing wherever you go? Do you think? Yeah, uh, that's going to be that's going to be real anywhere you go. I think the nice part about the way GCU's, uh, I think it could be navigated. If I were talking to parents right now, they're listening. Where do I send my kid? I think you have to prep them to say, "Hey, anywhere you send your kid, they're going to have to know how to survive." So apologetic framework and mindset from the high school years, having these conversations about difficult issues. Parents are still the primary people that need to prepare their kids for the college experience. There's just no way around it, no matter where you go. You can pick the most conservative place you can imagine. If you don't teach your kids how to discern, they're going to fail and they're going to fall, right? Um, because they're going to assume that what happens, oh, if I'm at these, such a robust place, everybody must be the same kind of Christian. Therefore, anything they do must be okay. <laughs> and they get down the road of deception the, very quickly because they don't have the guardrails to know, oh, wait, red flag here. Oh, wait, concern there. So they have to know how to do that. Uh, I think, again, on the GCU side, what's we get those students as well. Uh, I, we do a survey of the class and I get written responses at the beginning and I'll read through those and you get the standard, oh, well, I'm a Christian and I just want to live a good life. Well, how do you decide what's right? Well, I follow my heart. I do whatever I believe. You know, So you get tons of that kind of stuff in there. And, you know, I'll get to the end of the class and I'll talk specifically about all that stuff. And when the kids do their post, you know, course writing, I'll still have some students say, oh, I still just following my heart. I mean, it just nothing seems to sink in. 
but some students you see real transformation because they've heard some things that they've never heard before. So you get that mix wherever you're at. And I think that's going to be true anywhere you go because humans are humans. Sin is mm -hmm. sin. I mean, look at Israel and they had Yahweh literally in their presence, right? You know, yeah. there's his glory comes among them and they're still like, well, I'm not sure I believe that. I want to fall away from this. I'm going to follow these idols. I'm going to do that. So, you know, there's nothing we can do to prevent sin from impacting our life choices. The question is how well are we prepared to deal with that and how strong of a system have we built around us that helps us recover from the fact when we do choose poorly you know do we have the family structures do we have the social structures to help us navigate that coming out of those sin choices and i think what we've provided at gcu is a great uh platform for through our caught faculty where students can come to us because i have a lot of conversations in my office where i'm helping students to navigate these these challenges. And I would feel more confident in our caught faculty doing that than in almost any other Christian university where they assume just because somebody's teaching philosophy that they're a Christian when they're not. Mm -hmm. So I think at least our case, the identities of who they are are clear and that's helpful um, to our mm -hmm. students. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking right now of a young woman who might be listening to this, who maybe she's grown up in a Christian home. She says she's a Christian and she is but she's, you know, maybe in high school and not yet at that uh, independent, I'm on my own stage. Mm -hmm. And she's wondering, how do I equip myself um, mm. between now, you know, under the umbrella of this safety net that my parents have created mm. and going to college? Because like you said, and what we just discussed, there's a lot of temptation out there uh, in the college mm -hmm. years. Um, what's What are some resources for her, or for her parents that might be beneficial? Yeah. It's a great question because when you read the stories of deconstruction, as we call it today, right, the people walking out, it's so fascinating to me how many of those people that are coming out and deconstructing, especially on the famous side, the Christian artists and musicians and all those other folks that do that, uh, how much they'll say, well, I started the, for the first time and I'm 20 or 30, whatever, I started to wonder, hey, well, what? you know, does the Bible say about science or these other things? And they've never contemplated that their entire life, right? Mm -hmm. They've looked at these social issues of gender ideology or race issues, and they've never, well, gosh, I've never thought about those things. And I'm thinking, how old are you? And you, 20, you've been singing, and you've never thought about those things. And then they'll say, well, I never, Christianity didn't have an answer. So I needed to look elsewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Which also makes me think, where did you really look? Because I know that there are tons of answers to those things and people have addressed that. But I think you get to a certain age, and this is what I tell parents is that um, one of the problems is we've so segregated our church worship experience into the generations, right? Kids go to the children's ministry, then we have middle school and high school, and there's a segregation of our worship experience, right? Uh, oftentimes parents, we don't, um, we shield our kids from the struggles we face on our own uh, faith journey, right? Financial struggles. Uh, but well, let's not tell the kids. We don't, we don't want them to worry. Uh, we have problems in our marriage. Well, let's not let the kids know that there's this struggle because we don't want them to 
fear, have anxiety about these things. Uh, I struggle with my faith on this issue, but well, I don't want to bring that up to the kids because we don't want to just know that God is true. We don't want to question or doubt that. And what we've done is we've isolated them so that they go to college and they face these questions, questions the pastors never preached on because they're afraid to touch on these social cultural issues, questions their parents have never discussed with them because we're trying to create them a safe environment where they can have a confidence in their faith. But now they're facing these questions for the first time and they assume that Christianity has no answer. And why do they assume that? It's because that's what they've been told, essentially, indirectly. Your parents, well, so when they come home, mom and dad, I'm struggling with this. And they'll, what's, you know, well, you know, you shouldn't struggle. Like, well, they'll say, what? Well, you don't understand, right? You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm experiencing. And to be honest, that response makes sense because they assume their parents have never struggled. They assume that the church has never even tried to offer an answer on those difficult social issues of race or gender, or those sort of things, because they've never heard a sermon about it. They've never had a dialogue about it. So they assume that whenever you try to answer it, that you're just trying to make an ad hoc answer to these difficult questions. And they'll rather go to their friends who are having the same struggles because it's the first people they've ever encountered who have said, yes, I have a struggle in this, XYZ area, right? And so, you know, I guess part of me that answered that question is where do you go first? I mean, the, the, the first answer is family. I mean, why haven't your parents, mom or dad, why hasn't the church been that network? Those should be the primary places we go to. Uh, yes, we can refer to books. There's great books on lots of issues, but those are so impersonal. Our faith is an intimate, personal, dynamic faith. It's meant to be relational. It's meant to be communal, yet we have no communal answer to the societal ills that we face. So while I love podcasts and you're what you're doing, I've done podcasts and I love books. Those are great tools and resources. They're not intimate tools. They're not relational tools, not in the way that God has designed us to live. So when they're living in an environment where they build relationship with people who are facing the struggles, they think the only solution is to deconstruct. And so, um, like I said, if you want to know sources or books, yeah, we could, we could go into that. We can find, you can internet search a bunch, you'll find stuff. To be honest, I would say the answer lies in relationships with family and church, and the church is failing in those things. Parents are failing in those things by and large because we have not created the communal environment where we have a fair, a shared faith community. You know, you look at the House of Cornelius in Acts. What happens is they hear the the, the gospel. Peter shares and says the whole household believed. Right there's a there's a communal nature to our faith, and I try to bring that out in my classes when I teach because we're so isolated individualistic as a culture you know follow our heart follow my feelings everything my perceptions determine all of reality and the church has not helped us solve that issue with the way we deal with those things so i don't know that i answered your question in the right way <laughs> but it's the answer i wish we had i don't know but for those that do have that that do have parents go talk to them Mm -hmm. Go speak to your pastor, ask them about these issues, because those are the relationships, the relationships that Christians have that are meant to be a source of strength to us when we face those questions. Mm. I love that answer. I think it's so true. I also know that there's some people who feel like they don't have that. 
who, yeah. you know, maybe they don't have family members who believe, or yeah. maybe they don't have a church family that they feel safe in, or maybe they yeah. have questions that they don't even know who they would address them to, because like you said, those questions or topics have never come up before. Um, yeah. So for somebody like that, who maybe... Yeah. I, I like to think of her as the girl in the back pew. Maybe she's just looking yeah. at Christianity. Like, I'm not sure if I'm coming or going here. Um, what advice would you give to that person about, you know, questions and um, preparing themselves yeah. and, and really knowing what the Christian worldview says? Yeah. I mean, definitely for those people, which is probably the one of the vast majority of people that are really in that circumstance, um, I'll tell you one quick story just to make sense of this answer a little bit. When I was in college, I was on the campus of Penn State University. There was actually a, a gentleman who was hired by the university um, and his job, he was the uh, LGB liaison. Back then they didn't have the TQIA plus all that stuff was, they just had three letters back then, LGB side, but he was the LGB liaison but hired by the university as a Christian, hired by a secular university that was the out to be, do outreach uh, to the, that community to get them into a Christian environment where they could be affirmed in their uh, sexual lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And that was his job. Um, and so I really wanted to meet this guy. I got into his office and I sat down and I had all, oh, I know what I'm going to say to this guy. You know, we're going to have this great conversation. <laughs> In the first five minutes, he says, you know, it's interesting. He said, um, he said, I actually don't believe, I do believe the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. I just don't believe that that is, uh, relevant today. That's what they believed then, but it's just not what I, he's a, he said, I'm a Christian. I believe the Bible, just certain parts are culturally sort of predicated. They're not necessarily relevant today. He said, but you have, it's interesting because I've had questions about the Bible my whole life. He's like, but here's the thing is you could walk into a church and ask a pastor any question and he's going to answer your question. If I walk in, they're going to try to change me first mm. uh, before they'll even answer my question. I think it was wrong on, on the fact that I don't think I could walk in and most people can't because a lot of pastors are afraid of questions. They think that, oh, that's doubt. You just have to believe and they don't, they're not prepared to answer. Uh, and uh, so I think he's wrong about that, but it did change our entire course of our conversation. I realized, you know, the issue isn't about homosexuality. This isn't about whatever the issue is today, gender identity, those things. The, the issue is, does God speak? Is he real in our life? And can I trust the scripture as to give me understanding about these deep questions that I'm facing, mm. right? And I think that's the core question that we all come back to. So I say that because um, I think where if people need to start, I think start with uh, podcasts or books that are talking about what is the nature of scripture? Who is Jesus? Uh, can I trust that he's truly been raised from the dead, that he is, you know, accounted for my sins? Does the narrative of the Bible give me answers to those questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny? What is that Christian worldview answer to those four key families of questions? And is that answer uh, what I need to answer the dilemmas that I'm facing? I think we get too hung up when we're fixated simply on the those those in culturally engagement, cultural engagement type questions of sex and gender and race. And so those are super important questions, but those are just entry questions uh, that need 
they're cultural questions that need an ontological answer, right? They're cultural questions that need an answer that's tied to the nature of God and who he is. Mm. So if we ask the question, you know, should I vote for a politician who's accused or even found, you know, a, a sexual harassment, right? What's the, how do I respond to that? That's a cultural question. That's a, that's a moral question of how do I practice my faith? But it's all tied into that ontological reality of, is human life worth protecting? So in other words, why is it even wrong to sexually assault or molest or attack somebody? Well, because if we're assuming a man is the one who has done that, well, we're assuming it's because women have sacred eternal value that they're made in the image of God. So outside of a Christian worldview, why is it even wrong? Why, is, why do we consider sexual assault a sin uh, or a bad thing? If it's just a natural world, it just is. There is no moral right or wrong. So I think learning to find resources that'll tie us to those bigger questions of biblical authority, who is the person of Jesus Christ, what is the nature of God, um, will then help people train them to navigate those other more cultural issues. Mm -hmm. So podcasts and books that are doing that, I think are, are probably a good starting point uh, for some of those issues. Yeah. And if you are listening to this and you have a pastor who's willing to, you know, address those hard questions, um, you know, sometimes I, I know for me, I was afraid to ask things. And then when I started having conversations with pastors, they surprised me uh, because mm -hmm. they were more prepared than I expected them to be. Or, or maybe, you know, you might be pleasantly surprised by that as well. And um, yeah. so I just want to give a shout out to people like Krista Grossier, <laughs> who I know has been on here yeah. before and, and the pastors that have been on here. Uh, just really grateful for, I mean, pastoring and apologetics and, you know, all yeah. these different things. It's a lot. Um, yeah, find out. That's another good idea, though, too, Janelle, is that, um, you know, so there's a lot of uh, podcaster, apologist, people that travel and speak, right? So you don't even have to go to their events necessarily, mm -hmm. but find out what churches are hosting those events. Yeah. Uh, and then find out, like, then, you know, connect with the, the leadership of that church after, because chances are they invited some apologists to come and speak because they are in, there's some group within that congregation that's interested. So if you live in a community that maybe your church doesn't, but there's a church down the road, go to those things, but not just to hear some person speak, mm -hmm. but so, but who are the relationships you can build out of that event? Find people who live in your city, live there that you can have, start to have those dialogues with, and then together start going through books and ideas. So finding people locally, I think is always going to be where I would push people towards. Yes, go to big events, listen to podcasts, listen to those things, but then find a way to kind of sort of like downward navigate that into who's in my community that I can talk to. Yeah. Uh, internet is not enough. Uh, chat forums are not enough. You need face-to-face -face human contact to navigate these things because those are the support structures. When you can look into somebody's eye and see the sorrow or the grief that they're going through and you can just, there's a, there's a, you feel when you're in a room, you can feel like when there's grief or there's joy in a room, right? You can't get that over the internet. And we need to be environments. When somebody's asking like your question, we'll get to, you know, why, what, why does God allow suffering? You know, is that an emotive question because they are suffering or is that a purely philosophical question? Sometimes you don't, you can sense that just by being in the room with somebody who's asking it. And this just doesn't come across digitally. So again, my push is, Yes, start with books or authors, find where they're speaking, but find somebody in your 
city that has invited those people, then go meet those people uh, that invited them and then build your network out of that local community because that's where it's going to happen. Not just purely you read a book. Don't don't ever be do that, but don't ever be satisfied with that. Yeah, I love that advice. It's fantastic. And if you're listening, we'll put a link in the show notes to some uh, great resources like Greg Kokel and Stand to Reason and Frank Turek yeah. and some of these guys who do these larger apologetics ministries that travel a lot. Mm -hmm. um, just to your point, you know, there's a lot of churches and schools yeah. and, and different places that are opening Lisa up their Childers doors to them. travels mm -hmm. a lot of places. So yeah. I've been on her show several times. Um and uh, she's going to be here in Arizona come September. And uh, but she traveled all over to tons of churches. So, yeah. you know, go to their like those are that's a great idea. You know, find those websites of the people that are traveling speakers. You're not going to meet those speakers. They're not going to be a part of anybody. That's fine. That's that's totally fine. But the people they're there with ministering yeah. to and speaking, they care and they're going to have answers that they'll gladly take some of their life and invest in you if you're needing people to talk with. So yeah, that's, I think, a great avenue. Yeah, I love that. So Joe, what are some of the biggest questions and issues that you deal with? And and just to say this, I love your emphasis on relationship, because that, you know, even though this is a podcast, technically, it really has been built uh, intentionally mm -hmm. around relation, relational mm -hmm. things. Absolutely. And um, I think that that's so important. We had a guest on here at one point. He just said, along to your point of, we don't front load the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't try to like, figure out all these different issues before you can come to Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus, the cross, that's central. And then all of these other things, um, once you encounter the risen Lord, right? Like mm -hmm. those things he deals with um, exactly. in a totally different way. So mm -hmm. um, what questions are you navigating with the students you're working with? Friend, if you're enjoying this episode, you may also enjoy exclusive bonus content each month. Finding Something Real is a podcast that has some costs associated with it. We have a website, monthly subscriptions to stay organized. We design things. We like to pay an assistant producer who keeps things going around here, that kind of stuff. We're not in the business of trying to make money, but we are in the business of wanting to keep this show going and be sustainable. So we use Patreon, and if you haven't heard of it, Patreon is the best place for creators to build memberships by providing exclusive access to their work and a deeper connection with their communities. Each month, patrons who support Finding Something Real get a bonus episode where we recap the month's episodes. Often those episodes feature our co-hosts, and they will often share what this journey was like. There's other perks over there too, and it's easy to get involved. Just go to findingsomethingreal.com and click support at the top of the page. We'd love to have you over there in our Patreon community. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, what I, do, I see from our students at Grand Canyon. Uh, the students, I'll like I said, well, there's a lot of questions. I'll put up prompts, and they'll give answers to what are the big issues. And it's interesting because I know we we I came on here, and we're going to talk about uh, the problem of evil and suffering, and we deal with that. Uh, to be quite honest, that doesn't seem to drive a lot of our students, at least not, at least not in the way that I thought it might. I mean, there are certainly students that do that, but I think. Honestly, the social issues of how Christianity responds to, is it an angry, mean religion? Uh, is it accepting, uh, you know, 
if Christianity says homosexuality is a sin, does that make it a hate religion? I think those tend to be the bigger drivers, the social uh, issues, the justice issues tend to be the bigger families of questions that that in interest the students uh, that are interested in those things. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you also, Janelle, too, I'm really surprised at how many students just don't think anything. Uh, they're not driven by any, they have no questions, they have no challenges. They just, no, I was just raised not to believe, or I was just raised to believe, and I'm fine with that. The lack of intellectual curiosity is really probably the most surprising part. Mm -hmm. I think a sense of, uh, maybe apathy is not the right word, but just sort of, I'm going about my life, I just want to be successful, and I'm not interested in any of those questions. Mm -hmm. uh, that is probably actually one of the more surprising things that I came across. I thought for sure everybody would care about race and gender and all those sort of things. But surprisingly, some said, I, I don't even know anything about those issues. Like mm -hmm. what you're living, how did you get to this point in life and not know these? And so it's really interesting how few students are, are really driven by any intellectual curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So to be honest, that's it. And the ones that are tend to be, like I said, more the social issues as opposed to the suffering issues. Yeah. Yeah. I had a young woman on here. She's actually going to be featured later this year. And um, yeah, I just love her. She's such a sweetheart. And uh, this is just the truth of what she shared with me. She was like, I don't know. I'm from this country. We're kind of shallow over there. Like I've never thought about these things before. And not mm. only was it, I've never thought about these things before, but I guess these are my questions. Um, and it was kind of like, I knew immediately, she's probably not going to come back for any of these conversations, right? And do I really want to explore these? Yes, we'll still explore them. But in my mind, I'm like, none of us get out of here unscathed. All of us mm -hmm. are going to be touched by evil and suffering at some point. And this question of suffering, yeah. I, I think it does speak to Luca from Switzerland, her intellectual uh, depth a little bit, mm -hmm. because um, they are taught, you know, some different religious things, um, even in her culture, even if you're not a Christian, you know, she's learning some different things. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost an inoculation, to be honest, I feel like, like I'm yeah. getting a little bit. And when she was mm -hmm. sharing about how she was presented, um, you know, the God of the Bible, it was always the happy stories. It was always the good things. It was mm -hmm. always how wonderful, you know. The flannel graph version yeah, of the exactly. gospel. Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, some of us Yay. are taught that way, right? <laughs> I yeah. remember the flannel graph. I remember thinking Noah's Ark was so cute, you know. It, yeah. it never occurred to me, right, what that actually signified. So how do you deal with somebody like Luca who earnestly, mm. um, you know, wrestled with that question of like, yeah. how can a good God, um, you know, do allow suffering? Because every single person on this planet, I just have this hypothesis, is either going to encounter this question, wrestle with it, or or at least ignore it because it's front and center yeah. in our lives. Yeah. So you know that's that's really an important question, and and if we were here to dialogue, if Luca had joined us, you know we might be able to approach this a little differently. Um, and by the way, if she listens to this later, uh, just know that she doesn't care about causing suffering clearly because she didn't feel that I was worth coming in to join me for this conversation. She had school. Oh yeah, well I have school. Whatever, I'm not as important as school. That's hurtful, Luca. <laughs> And uh, you caused sorrow and pain in my life. So yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. how do you deal with that? Uh, so anyway, no, I'm just, sorry, Luca, just kidding. Uh, that's American humor. 
so I think the first the first uh, first thing I'd always want to explore is is this a question that's actually truly philosophical or is it coming from personal pain and experience? Because our approach to that is very different. You know, if it's like why did my mom or dad die in this horrible accident or somebody you know like or why am I somebody I love sick or why am I sick? That's a very different approach in terms of apologetically than the more abstract the problem of evil, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to assume that's not the case because the way you framed it here, mm -hmm. but I just want to point out for those, you know, that might be listening, Janelle, that are thinking, how do I approach my friend who's doing this? I think you always begin with the question, why is this question important to you? Why does that question matter to you? Right. And then there's where you're going to find out the right approach. Okay. So you don't jump into uh, a theological, biblical, or philosophical answer until you find out if there's a, a, a pain and sorrow issue involved, because all those things will fall on deaf ears because you're dealing with somebody who's wounded and who's bleeding, who's suffering. And uh, we need to care for that, the person, before we care for, you know, the other issues, which are important, but just never going to matter until they you know, stop the bleeding, so to speak. Um, so I, I, I think the approach I would take um, is first is you can contrast two different worldviews. So for somebody like Luca, who's I'm assuming a naturalist, doesn't believe there's God. I think she's, um, we mentioned she's atheist now, agnostic. So agnostics, you know, don't say whether there is a God or not, but they live like atheists because they they live life assuming there is no god because they can't i mean there's only another one way to live mm -hmm. so they don't know so therefore uh they have to live in that direction so you know philosophically i'd say okay now we have two different worldviews so you're saying there's a problem with suffering so my always question is how do you know that they're suffering what does that even mean define that term um is suffering mean a preference for no pain uh and the second question is why does that matter to me in a naturalist world without a God, right? So why do I care if Janelle suffers, right? What if Janelle's suffering makes me happy? There are people who are, you know, masochists who love to inflict pain. They take joy and pleasure in inflicting pain. Um, are they wrong? Are you saying that to inflict pain on somebody is a wrong thing. Absolutely. You're making an absolute moral statement from a naturalistic worldview, uh, but you have no foundation to make that as an absolute claim. All you can really claim is that, well, it doesn't make me feel good to see Janelle suffer, but that's a subjective personal opinion. You can't judge me based on that. Uh, you could do it from a cultural framework. You could say, well, the culture agrees that this is wrong to you know, cause Janelle harm, right? But what if I live in a different culture that doesn't agree with that? What if I live in a culture that says it's okay to oppress women or to force them into marriages that they don't want to be in? Uh, what if I live in a culture that does say that it's okay to force women into sex slavery? Um, who are we to judge, right? I mean, are we really going to be the moral judge now of those people? On what foundation do you do that? So what I'd argue, first of all, is that we have two approaches there. One is the naturalist worldview that says there is no objective wrong or sin or suffering, right? So why are you having a problem with suffering? That's just a personal opinion, not you know an actual objective wrong. Now, if you want to say, well, how is the biblical framework? Yes, we have a God who created us. Now, the Christian has an answer to the problem of evil and suffering. And that's the fact that there's sin that's come into the world. So God created a good world. It was never a 
perfect world. It was a good world in creation. God had created humanity to do work, to take and subdue the earth, right? To uh, cooperate with God, our creator, by creating a, 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 what was in the garden and to take that outside the world. And the first two humans were to multiply, to be fruitful and, and sort of reproduce the garden uh, and, and allow the walls of the garden to expand so the borders of the garden to expand so i tell my students is to make a good world gooder that's a <laughs> that's, you can use that word that's good <laughs> uh so it's make a good world gooder towards the promised place where all the world would worship and bow down and serve and worship god but they chose sin right so sin brings in sorrow suffering and grief so the the sorrow we see is not as a result of God's good creation. It's a result of our rebellion against a good God who made us not to do evil, but to do good. And so that's, I mean, that's the rough answer. I mean, I know where the question goes after that, but I'll just pause with that and say, those are the two worldview choices mm -hmm. as we deal with the problem of evil. And so you have to decide from which framework you're going to argue this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, so you can say, well, how could a good God allow evil? I'd say, well, how can you even say there is such a thing as evil? So what is your foundation for that? So now we have to decide which worldview we're really going to take from the start of this. Mm -hmm. Well, if Luca was here, she'd probably say, well, <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a product. And Luca, I'm sorry if you're listening. I'm just going to do a really <laughs> botched up job here, probably. I warned you. Um, I was messaging her this morning. I said, uh, I'm sorry if I don't do a good job here. But, uh, you know, she probably would say something along the lines of, uh, you know, well, over, you know, a lot of evolutionary years and different things, we've come up with this moral compass that yeah. has become part of our culture. Humans have built uh, these, uh, this idea of suffering, we know what hurts. And so um, we don't need a God necessarily, this is her worldview, not mine, um, yeah. to explain all of that, right? And so yeah. if there is a good God, then why wouldn't he do something about it? Yeah, yeah. So that's really kind of two things, though, again. So the first part of that is, well, we've evolved, society evolved a certain moral sort of standards that we know help us evolve to some sort of higher state. So uh, I'd give, I'd say, Luke, I'd, I can give you a journal. One of, this is one of those fascinating things. I came across it when I was doing my PhD stuff. Um, and I write a little bit about this in terms of evolutionary moral systems. There's an art, there's a journal article that was written by two uh, naturalists, two atheists, and they were dealing with the issue of rape. Now, their point was that societally, they were saying from a societal perspective, because society is the only thing that determines moral good or right. Society is the framework because we've evolved at the same kind of framework. They said, so why is rape wrong then within that? And the interesting part is both authors get to the end, they disagree on what the actual uh, argument would be, but they basically say this as well, we can't say that it's objectively morally wrong because there's been times in human evolutionary history where it's been useful. It's been necessary for the propagation of the species. All we can say now is that it's not necessary, not that it's actually wrong. Mm. So here's the problem with that argument for those who would make that, or in Lucas' case, if that's the kind of direction we're going to go. Well, we've evolved. So what happens when the the conditions of society change? What happens if uh, countries go to war, we put off a bunch of bombs, the grid goes down, we're just struggling to survive. Now we have a whole different culture. 
well, if we need to repopulate the world, are we back where we were thousands of years ago or millions of years ago? The necessity of repopulating and refilling the earth, does that become, does rape become a morally acceptable, cultural, culturally acceptable uh, platform for us to propagate the survival of the fittest, the species? Um, so you're left with the same problem. You can't get away from it just saying, well, society says, because even today there's societies, cultures that have evolved the same as we have, but they have no problem with certain moral actions that we from a Western perspective would reject as immoral. So that really doesn't solve the problem, taking it from a personal level to a societal level, because in that case, morality is still subjective. It's just culturally subjective as opposed to individually subjective but it doesn't really deal with the problem of something we know in our hearts is wrong. We know that certain things like rape are evil. Well, how do you know that? Well, you can't know if, if it's purely a naturalist world and it's even conditioned by culture because you're still looking outside to other cultures where it's acceptable and saying it's still wrong, right? We still wanna say that's wrong for somebody in Africa or the Middle East or Asia to, to, to rape a woman, that's still evil. Well, how do you know that? Because they say differently. They say it's okay in that particular cultural context. So that that leads us back to well, what's the biblical Christian answer to that? You know, what if why would God allow that to happen? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, this now becomes here's the Christian worldview answer to that, biblical answer to that is that God created humans with free choice because love is always a greater thing than slavery and servitude. God created us to as beings to love him, to have relationship, to have community with him, to have relationship of, that's healthy with one another, to value one another. And so for that to be the, uh, the best world that God can create, it has to allow for us to choose to rebel, to choose not to love. If I have to force you to love me, that makes you my slave. I can't force you to do that. So God created the the ideal world that gave that gave humans the opportunity to follow in obedience, to follow in love. We chose to do other things with that with that freedom of choice, and we chose to sin, which means now there's the propagation of sin and evil. So what about wiping people out? Why doesn't God just stop the the, the bad people from doing the bad stuff? Right. Well, it's interesting because then we get into a situation where okay, so let's look at the God of the Old Testament. So when Israel comes into the land of Canaan, he says, hey, wipe out all the Canaanites. We say, oh, see, God's an evil God. He's wiping out all these people. Well, wait a second. I thought you wanted God to stop people from doing bad stuff. The reason God had Israel do that is because the Canaanites were uh, you know, doing all the stuff that we would say is on. They had child sacrifices. Uh, there was a culture of moral degradation. Women were not valued. Women were abused and all that sort of culture existed there. So God is saying that he had had the opportunity, he tried to persuade the Canaanites over centuries, hey, repent, turn away from the evil. They didn't. He used Israel as a as a tool to constrain as a tool to constrain the evil in the land of Canaan. So which is it? You want God to stop evil from happening? Why doesn't he stop it? But then when he does stop it, we complain that God stops it. So it seems to me that there is a confused argument on that side. And, and where we go depends really like, obviously, if I'm dialoguing with like a Luca or something like that, you know, there's a lot more questions involved in this process. But that's the general thrust of where I would drive it. Mm. Yeah, well, on the flood, I mean, uh, yeah. getting rid of everybody except for 
the good guys, uh, so yeah. to speak. And we still have a lot of evil and yeah. screwed up things here. Yeah. But, I mean, why doesn't he intervene, Joe? Dr. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Yeah, Miller, exactly. why doesn't he, why yeah. doesn't he intervene? Well, see, and I think that's the point is he does intervene and his intervention though, has a specific process. Now here's where we get to the question is, well, if I, we're, what we're really saying is if I were God, I would intervene in a different way than the Christian God. That's really what we mean because God does intervene. He does have a, a, a process by which he's seeks to correct the evil done. Think of the movie uh, uh, Bruce Almighty, right? That's an old movie that goes back uh, mm -hmm. with, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, I can't think of that. Jim, Jim Carrey. Carrey, right? And so Bruce Almighty, he's a guy named Bruce, meets God, and God, he wants the powers, to, you know, God-like powers. And he starts messing around, doing silly stuff. But eventually he starts answering the emails that are coming into God, like, hey, God, my little, you know, kitty is suffering, make him better, you know, and then the real stuff of sorrow. So he starts answering everybody's prayer requests, right? Giving everybody what it is. So nobody feels the sense of suffering, sorrow, grief, or anguish. Yes, and then he ends all. up making the world like horrible, right? It's even worse than it was before, right? So our capacity, what we think we would do to solve that thing, the question is, what are the unintended consequences, right? If my goal as a God is to make everybody happy, I mean, what do we define as suffering at that point? Is it just, do I suffer because something doesn't go my way? Oh, I didn't get that job. Why would God allow me to suffer by not getting a job? Uh, well, okay, but if 100 people applied to that, 100 people can't get the job, is that God's fault? Or is there some way we can deal with the sense that we don't always get what we want? So is that what we mean by suffering? Just simply not making me happy. Uh, because now we're with, well, again, sometimes what would make one person, oh, it would make me happy. I met this wonderful woman. I want to marry her. Well, she doesn't love me. Well, God, why can't you make her love me? You know, I was like, well, okay, could God make her love you? Sure he could. But why would God do that? So at some point we get, as we sort of trace that rabbit trail, eventually we get to the place where God is going to then be in a position to force us uh, to do something against our will, which violates the way he created us to be loving human beings. So God chooses not to do that. So what? how does he correct? Well, in the Old Testament, we see where Cain kills Abel, right? What does God do? He doesn't he doesn't take the life of Cain. He says, you're going to be cast out from your family. You're going to be a wanderer, but nobody will kill you as they as, as you wander the earth. He actually gives him what he wanted. He hated his family. He hated, he rebelled against God. So God said, okay, I'm going to give you a life away from family and away from me. See how that works out for you. Mm -hmm. So sometimes God's response is to give us what we ask for. Uh, even though that's not his, that's one way God tries to constrain evil. Then we have Noah, the flood we talked about. We get the Tower of Babel, whereas another way where people can aspire to do evil, to become like God, to live in society, set up their own rules of society in the Tower of Babel. So God doesn't kill those people for their pursuit of sinful lifestyles. He just confuses their language. Right. So God intervenes. Uh, then we get the flood story, of course, where God does because the evil is so great. He wipes out everybody except for the one little righteous family that was seeking to do what was right. Not that they were perfect, but they were seeking to do that. But so so God does intervene. And then ultimately he intervenes through the history of Israel, through what he does to establish a nation who would, you know, there was the garden that was lost. Israel becomes the next sort of garden like place. They were to be the Edemic state where take a people, worship God, 
be fruitful and multiply, spread out and take uh, God to all the nations so that all would be blessed. That sort of fails. Now we have the New Testament. We have the, he intervenes through the person of Christ, through Christ's death and resurrection. He gives us all the capacity to overcome our own desire for evil and doing what is wrong, and then gives us a passion to be on mission, to, to stop and constrain evil where it's within our power. So God's now chosen intervention is through the church, which each church is sort of like its own little garden intended to be this sort of endemic state where we would spread, be fruitful and multiply and take the hope of God to the world where we would transform the world. So when I talk with people and say, oh, what about suffering in Africa? I said, well, there's a reason that I think you see that there's, you know, poverty somewhere. God has created you to be the problem solver. He's created you to be the person to put an end to that suffering. So we are his instruments that he has created where we would willingly choose to obey, to walk in faithfulness and put an end to those evil things. So humans are the instrument that God uses to intervene. That's his plan and his purpose. Now we may not like that. We might wish he would snap the finger, but now we're arguing that God is real. He just is, you know, he's just not doing it the way I want him to do it. Okay. So first step, is God real or not? Is there such a thing as evil or not? But if you want to say, acknowledge, yes, God's real. Now we're going to argue, well, he's not doing it the way I wanted God to do it. That's a whole separate argument that deals with the problem of evil in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if there is a God and he's real, if I was Luca, maybe I'd ask this. Um, is there a purpose to our suffering that maybe we can't see? Yeah. And that begins the other issue. Okay. So what do we call, uh, I, I put this little chart up with my students. We talk about, okay, what is suffering? What is evil and what is good? Right? So we talk about morally good suffering, morally evil suffering. Uh, there's morally good pleasure. There's morally evil pleasure, right? So we could have a morally evil pleasure. Again, if I take pleasure in torturing puppies, that is evil. I would say from Christian worldview, that is evil. And I, even though I take pleasure in it, it's a morally evil pleasure, right? Uh, there's uh, morally evil uh, suffering, right? So uh, that's also kind of thing. The animal suffers in that case, or if I'm doing torturing a human, the individual is suffering. That's morally evil because they're suffering for no good end, except for the pleasure of somebody else, right? So we can have those examples. But that leaves morally good suffering and morally good pleasure. So notice we go back to Genesis chapter one. What's critical there is, let's take Eve. Um, God says, I'll multiply your pain and childbearing. It doesn't say he'll create pain. Pain has always been a part of the human condition. Pain isn't necessarily an evil. Uh, human, you know, we have fire. Fire was always had the physical properties of fire. If Adam would have stuck his hand into a fire, it would have burned his hand, mm. right? The pain receptors on his skin would have said, hey, don't put your hand any closer to the fire, right? So God created us with pain receptors, the capacity to experience pain so that we know what our limits are, so that we know what is good and what is bad. So the, the capacity to suffer is in of itself not a moral evil. It actually helps us know what is evil physically, biologically, on on that human level. So um, there are potentially morally good suffering in that. Uh, think about when you work out, right? Uh, I started working out again, trying to do thing, and you know the, <laughs> the lactic acid builds up, and you know the muscles hurt. Well, what's happening? I'm literally tearing the muscle apart, and then it heals and knits itself back together, and that's what makes it bigger. 
right? So nobody who exercises uh, has would ever deny the fact that there is morally good suffering. I'm suffering when I'm on the treadmill for whatever, uh, but yet I feel better, you know, after that process. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then that leaves us with morally, you know, uh, so we covered morally evil uh, suffering, morally good suffering. Uh, there's morally good pleasure. There's morally evil pleasure. Right. So, um, and, and those are the four categories that we have to deal with. And then we say, okay, well, what goes into each of those categories? But see, now this is where the dialogue has to happen. What do you mean by why doesn't God end suffering? There's a lot of details in that. And which category would you throw it in? And are your categories my categories? Who gets to set those categories? Well, if we're all just individuals and subjective, your category may not be my category for where I put certain things. So is there an objective reality out there that determines what fits into those categories so let's start with that conversation and then boil that down to very specifics because in the in the abstract why does god allow evil to happen is really not a useful uh question it's a good starting point but it's not useful in really unpacking what do people mean by that mm -hmm. and as you get down into the details of that i i would argue that the christian worldview and the biblical uh record gives us a good answer to all of those problems in the specifics, mm. but not always when we feel it in the generic, right? Mm -hmm. So for somebody listening like Luca, who maybe is not surrounded by a Christian community, maybe is isolated yeah. by geographic limitations or just the fact yeah. that she, I mean, I don't think she has any friends who are Christians. Mm. If she wanted to dig deeper into the Christian worldview about suffering can you recommend one one book that you think would be helpful? Mm. Yes, I can. Well, first I'd say, Luca, you missed your opportunity to talk with me about that. So <laughs> clearly that is the problem. Okay, so therein, okay, bad choice. Uh, yeah, education, school, whatever. Um, anyway, so she didn't do it. That's fine. Uh, if you ever have me back, she ever wants to join in, I will I, do that. I no, mean, she you. might I will now. Come back and we can actually invitation. have a conversation with her. Because I do think the relational, conversational type approach to life is so better than any book. Not that books aren't great, but I just think, you know, again, for people truly that genuinely have that as a question, not in the abstract, but in the concrete, I think there's no better, there's no substitute for dialogue. Yeah. So I'm glad she has friends like you and she has other people that she can reach out to. But as far as a book, uh, this is an old book goes back. Uh, it's a book called When God Weeps by Joni Erickson Tata mm -hmm. uh, and Steve Estes. Uh, now, for viewers not knowing who that is, Joni Erickson Tata is a quadriplegic. She was a woman who, when she was a teenager, dove into a swimming pool head first, hit her head on the bottom, was paralyzed from the neck down from that point on. Uh, she now is a Christian speaker. She's still around, uh, alive and kicking. Uh, and she wrote a book. I think it was the late nineties. If I recall, I can't remember, uh, 96 sticks in mind. So I said, this book's been around, but I used to give this book away, uh, when I was in church, so like, a, a, you know, when you give a gift to new visitors, I would give away this book like candy. Cause I felt it was always the best answer to the problem of suffering that I have ever read because the first half of the book is the emotive. Because Joni Erickson Tata is telling her story. She's telling the story of other people who are quadriplegic. She opens up with a story. She talks about a guy who's a quadriplegic who is being cared for in his home. And, you know, they're on an IV drip because they can't take in nutrients. Can't, some people can't even swallow properly. It's just a crazy thing. One evening, this guy is there. Uh, 
and uh, ants uh, start to crawl up the uh, feeding tube with the uh, the the sort of uh, the the sugary liquid you know that that, that is using for stuff, and basically uh, he gets bitten to death over the course of hours by thousands and thousands of ants. Nobody's there to save him. Nobody's there to rescue him. And just because he can't cry out mm. because he doesn't have the vocal capacity to do that. And she's like, where is God in the midst of that? You know, and so her response, the title is when God weeps, God weeps and he sorrows with us. The second half of the book, Steve Estes really gets into the biblical response to where is God in the midst of that kind of suffering. So she takes head on with Steve Estes, that issue of suffering in a very vivid, very real way. There's no artifice. It's not just an abstract philosophical, theological response. She is somebody who's dealing with a, you know, a life being a quadriplegic and the suffering that she has to go through, the pain uh, that, that she's had to deal with her entire life uh, and, and of the stories of people that she ministers to through her ministry. Uh, and so I think she has the position of her life and her experience to speak to that. She speaks to it with compassion and empathy in a way that very few can. And the theological response which follows, I think the foundation is laid by the first half. So that's really my favorite all-time book that ever deals with that. And that is should be standard reading for any uh, person who's suffering or wants to have an apologetic answer to the problem of suffering. Well, you sold me. I'm going to order it off of Amazon as soon yeah. as I'm done here. Final, yeah. <laughs> final question, Joe. I really appreciate this conversation. I know we're running out of time, but we always ask the final question on the Finding Something Real podcast, um, because it's about a journey towards restoration, eternity, mm. authenticity, and love. Uh, those four gifts that we can find in relationship with Jesus Christ, and obviously there are many others, um, mm -hmm. which of them stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? Restoration, eternity, authenticity, or love? Mm. I think authenticity is is one of the most difficult things for all of us, culturally speaking, uh, I'm more of an introvert anyway. So, you know, by personality, it's probably the bigger struggle. Uh, I think it's the biggest struggle with pastors uh, up front, having done 20 some years in pastoral ministry. Um, you know, there's acceptable sins and there's not acceptable sins, right? Every pastor struggles with, oh, I get grumpy when the line is long at the checkout or, oh, I got mad at somebody in traffic. But pastors aren't authentic about the struggles of sexual, you know, temptation. They're not authentic about gluttony. They're not authentic about other temptations that are non-acceptable sins. And what we end up is with artificial communities where we can't be real with our struggles uh, and we can't be open about the questions that we have for fear that we'll be ostracized, isolated, and uh, marginalized by our brothers and sisters in Christ, let alone the world. So I think I struggle with that because um, there's a reason that's hard is because people will ostracize and they will isolate you because nobody wants to be in a church with a pastor who actually genuinely has a real struggle. We all say we do. We all say we want authenticity, but we don't really want that. Mm -hmm. um, authenticity we don't want because authenticity entails accountability. Uh, when I planted a church, we did church around tables. We sat in little tables and we actually had engagement where people would have to talk to each other and answer questions <laughs> during the service. Um, if you look at studies, uh, people say we want 
authentic. We want authenticity. Uh, church is not where I want because they're not authentic. We're sitting in rows and looking at the back of people's heads. But if you give that same group of people tables and community, they won't show up anymore. Why? Well, because, you know, I, I want to be uh, alone. I, I want to be, you know, I want to be able to miss and not have somebody say, why weren't you here last Sunday? I missed you. Uh, we want somebody, we don't want somebody to actually say, hey, in the message today, what did you struggle with? Is there something in that, that that's meaningful to you that you're struggling with? We don't actually want to be asked that question. Uh, but yet we long to be asked that question, right? So I think authenticity is the hardest thing with our family. It's true in my life. I mean, being authentic with my wife, being authentic with my sons. I have had to fight to force myself in a healthy way to be authentic. Like we talked about beginning, letting my sons see my struggles. And all three of my sons, thank God, are serving the Lord at 22, 18, and 15, uh, and have a, a vibrant faith right now. And they've had their struggles over years, but they all have a growing, maturing faith right now. Uh, and I think in large part, because my wife and I have said, you know, we used to sit and do Taco Tuesdays or Taco Thursdays. Sometimes we did Taco Wednesdays, even though it didn't match <laughs> with the tea sound. Uh, but we'd sit down and I'd just sit down and say, hey, sons, I'm, hey, there's this thing that happened in the news. What do your friends say? Well, how do they take that story? Uh, you know, transgender issues, you know, they've been talking about this stuff since they're 10, 11, 12, because they can't hide it. They're in school. They see it all the time. What do your friends say? What would you say if your friend asked you about this issue? We've had those things. We've done, hey, we're, we're in turn now. I've been in finance. I've been fired from jobs. I've lost my jobs. And I've gone to food banks just because I'm scared about like, well, how am I going to feed my family? And I didn't hide any of that from my kids. And that was very hard not to hide that because as a man, you know, when you when you want your sons to know that you're not perfect, uh, they'll get there soon enough. Oh, there's my pop up. Sorry, that was the noise. <laughs> he, uh, but um, he, um, you know, they're going to discover that soon enough. There, you can see my dog Janelle. So cute. That, you can <laughs> see take a picture. Audio people can't see that, but that's their I'll style. put it on my Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's okay. So, um, uh, but you know, I think creating environments where parents you force yourself to be authentic so that your children can have uh, meaningful faith i've seen the rewards but there's the struggle right because again like as a man um you know you want to be the hero to your son you want to be that but you know i always told from little i said you know your dad is imperfect i'm gonna make tons of mistakes you know mm -hmm. uh, my job is to make you a better man than i am uh, my job is to make you a smarter man than I am. Um, so that way, when they got to their rebellion years and they, oh, dad doesn't know anything. I said, well, that's because I'm such a great dad. I made you smarter than me. So <laughs> Why I, I still win. So yeah, I, I was preemptive on that one. Um, <laughs> but I think that sense of authenticity, I try to have it in my classroom. I try to let my students uh, know areas of struggle. And you have to be wise in that. I don't tell them everything because they have to be circles of trust that have built up over time. Mm -hmm. But you can still be authentic with, with people in terms of where you are at in life and the struggles that you face even now, you know, uh, that I face. So th those are all important things. And I think that's, for me, that would be the biggest one. And I think honestly, culturally, because of our uh, individualistic culture, our uh, postmodern culture, where the self is the center of everything, that is probably the most uh, difficult thing for us. Mm, yeah. Well, Dr. Joe Miller, thank you so much for being here today on the Finding Something Real podcast. It's been a real joy. 
uh, chatting with you. And I have so many other questions. We're going to have to have you back on at some point. Anytime, Janelle. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that. But if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.